One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that uses musical memories to tap into our guests' lives and stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Robert or Bob Hilliard. I would call Bob, who's been coming to Southwest Florida since the late 90s and has lived here full-time since 2007, a local legend, but that would be selling him and his life's accomplishments and stories far short. Bob was born in New York City in 1925. He was drafted in 1944, just as the Allies were planning the D-Day invasion, which he heard reports of during advanced radio training at Fort Benning, Georgia, in the years since the war. And we'll get into some of his stories from that time in a bit. Bob has toured all five continents, giving talks about his memoir from that time called Surviving the Americans, The Continued Struggle of the Jews After Liberation. There's also a film about his actions during that time. He says he's had three careers, first in the media in New York, working in theater and radio and later television. He was also drama critic for the Brooklyn Daily Newspaper. He's written about 40 books, about 20 plays. He spent years in Washington, D.C. as chief of public broadcasting at the FCC and chaired the Federal Interagency Media Committee for the White House, and he was present for the signing of the Public Broadcasting Act. He also spent about three decades in academia at Emerson College in Boston, where he was dean of graduate studies, dean of continuing education, professor of mass communication, and is still Professor Emeritus. The thing about Bob Hilliard is he spent his life, he's 94 now, doing amazing things and standing up for those who need someone to stand up for them and speaking truth to power in a way we could all definitely learn from. So needless to say, we're more than honored to have him in the Three Song Stories chair. So let's get to Bob Hilliard's song stories. Hey there, Bob Hilliard. How you doing? I'm doing fine, and I'm delighted to be here with this wonderful type of show. Is it true that you had lunch with Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo? Oh, how did you know about that? Yes, I do many, my due many diligence. Years ago. <laughs> how did that come about? This was at, uh, I think it was 1970, uh, when I was with the Federal Communications Commission, and uh, I was chief public broadcasting. And there was a conference on children, a White House conference on children, And uh, I went to one of the panels, of course, dealing with the media, dealing with television. And there was um, Bob Keeshan and Fred Rogers. And we talked, and we all went and sat down and had lunch together. And I went, um, when I got home that evening, I told my kids about it. My my children at that time were um, six and ten. And suddenly their father was very, very important (laughs) because he had lunch with Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo. I told Richard that story and he said he had a similar thing with his daughter because his daughter, he dressed up. Who would you dress up as, Richard? I didn't dress up. What happened was my daughter knows I work here and we are PBS station too. And she told her friends at school that I worked with Daniel Tiger and they did not (laughs) believe her. So I came here. And I got one of our staffers to take a picture of me next to the big cardboard cutout of Daniel Tiger with our arms around each other. And she became super cool. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, Well, we'll get further into your FCC years later, but let's move on to the song stories and stuff. Um, What was the musical background of your childhood? Big bands. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the um, 1930s. And uh, big bands and ballads. So, uh, you know, people today say, when are you going to see Hamilton? Right. And I say, I can't 
deal with rap music. Even through the lens of Hamilton? Well, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> no, I, this, this morning I had breakfast with an old friend who uh, saw it, and he's, when I say old friend, I mean he's, he's older, in the 80s. Right. And he said he had the same problem. Hmm. I can understand yeah. that, I suppose. Well, you know, you grow up with a certain type of yeah. music, and that's what you feel and you think and you hear. And when you grow up with big band and ballads and uh, people, I bet some of the people don't even know these names, Frank Sinatra and Big Crosby. And <laughs> I think those Martin. names may have stuck around a little yeah, bit. Yes, <laughs> a, couple, a couple of names probably remembered now. Uh, but when you hear them and you grow up with them and that's what you feel good about, when rock came along, yes, it was a wonderful new beat, but that's not what you feel. Hmm. Hmm. So there's, there's a difference. Um, was there instruments being played around you, or did you ever play instruments? I took, as some people would say, I took piano lessons for my mother when I was a kid. That sounds familiar. She wanted, she wanted me to take piano lessons. And I did, but, the, you know, the problem was instead of practicing in the summers, we were out uh, at a nearby park playing softball. And not practicing and that, piano. Well, that, well, of course, you know. Uh, at that time, I grew up in New York. And uh, at that time, if you ask the kids, now, what would, you rather, would you rather be president or hit a home run in Yankee Stadium that wins the World Series? And, of course, everybody chose the latter. Right. And nobody chose pianist. <laughs> uh, no. Well, I, I had friends who uh, – some of them were, were good musicians. Do you have an early musical memory? Like if you just try to go back as far as you can in your head as a kid, is there something that pops into your mind? Not that early. I listened to music when I was – well, beginning at the age of uh, three, four, five. Uh, actually, at that time – and this um, – will clarify the fact that I'm 94 years old now. Uh, when I was about five years old, we had a radio, and I would listen to radio assiduously and hear music and, uh, of course, programs. And I remember there were... Um, I don't know if you, you remember a famous story about um, WR New York had an Uncle Don children's program. Hmm, I don't. Uh, well, uh, famous story about that. Uh, you know, at that time, some of the people were not as good as you are in the control room and were very <laughs> lax. And Uncle Don was a wonderful type of person with kids and talked about how wonderful they are and so forth. Uh, and uh, one day they forgot to turn it off when the program was over. Oh, boy. And... I won't say the exact word, but uh, Uncle Don says, well, that should keep the little blanks for a little while. <laughs> True story. You know, there's a saying we have in radio that every mic is a hot mic. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, uh, you were a DJ at some point. I'm sorry. Uh, was... You were a DJ at some point? Yes. Uh, actually, that was one of my first jobs. Uh, station WTUX. In Wilmington, Delaware. Hmm. I was living in, in Wilmington. How old were you at that time? Oh, I was older. I was um, 21, 22. 
So that would have been after the war? After war, yes. Oh, I came back. That was when you, when you came back. Okay. Yes. Actually, um, I wanted to be a writer right. early on. So I went to the radio station and said, um, you know, I, you need a writer here? And at that time, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice was considerably better than it is now. <laughs> you know, it, it ages and you, you don't have the, the timber. And uh, in any event, they heard me speak. And they said, would you like to be a DJ? Hmm. And I said, absolutely. Hmm. So I did that for, it was only about a year or so. But you were spinning records then. You were. Oh, absolutely. Did you have, oh, auto- was, you have autonomy over what was being played? Like these days, they just play and then the DJs talk and there's no connection. Did you get to pick your records? Uh, well, they, they had a record librarian. Oh. And they would have a lot of things out for me. But I, I did my own shows. Uh, for example, uh, one show I put together myself with with uh, I would go research, pick out a year, and pick out the the important things that happened that year, and tie it in with the music for that year. Hmm. And that was fun. Yeah. Uh, and I I have no idea what the audience was because um, we didn't get feedback. It was a small station. Right. And then you you went on to do a lot more writing than you did DJing, right? <laughs> Yes, I, that was that was my um, career as a DJ. Huh. Um, uh, let's talk about your first song. What is your first song, and, and what is the story that goes along with it? Uh, I'll start with very personal, very personal situation. I had a sister who was six and a half years younger than me, and uh, this was during the Great Depression. Both my parents were working, and so I took care of her uh, probably from the time I was 11 or 12 uh, and uh, kind of almost like a surrogate parent Mm -hmm. and loved her very much and she reacted to me in the same way. Now, during that period, there was a song, a very popular song called I Don't Want to Walk Without You, Baby. And my nickname, Robert, became Bob, and so she would call me Bobby. So she would sing lovingly, I don't want to walk without you, Bobby. Well, every time I hear that song now, I do get tears in my eyes. Um, She looked at me not only as a big brother, but I think whatever closer you can get to that, like a a parent. Um, She became an actress. And uh, in fact, at at one time, she was a stand-in for uh, Sophia Loren. Hmm. She was tall, beautiful. She smoked. And at too early an age, uh, she got multiple cancers, died much too young, and I still cry for her. And you know, right now, I cry not only for her, but I cry for the people who still smoke Hmm. cigarettes uh, because I know that they are going to die much too young and die a painful Horrible death, hmm. as my sister did. 
How old was she when she passed away? 58. Wow. Now, that may seem older, but... Uh, I mean, that was a long time ago. A long time ago, yeah. Hmm. You want to listen to the song? Yes. What's her name? Pardon me? What's her name? My sister. Mm-hmm. Her stage name was Lee Norman. Hmm. Well, let's listen to it. This is uh, I Don't Want to Walk Without You, performed by Harry James and his orchestra with Helen Forrest, released in 1942. When was the last time you listened to that? I cannot remember. Hmm. Because it's not played anymore. Right. What's it make and you of, f- And of course, I miss all the ballads that I grew up with. What does that make you feel when you listen to that now after all these years? I can hear my sister in my mind singing that to me. You know, it, it, at night or in the dark or if we're walking someplace a little scary... She would sing, I don't want to walk without you, Bobby. Hmm. You know, there's lots of different ways to listen to music now. Do you ever, like, go on YouTube? That's where we found this. You know, it's not on the radio, but it's there. Oh, I'm too old to use YouTube. No, you you emailed me. (laughs) Um, No, no, I I use YouTube. But I I don't listen to music on YouTube or, or on my phone. Yeah. Uh, I have CDs, and in fact, I have some old shellac records yeah. that uh, have not been transferred to CDs. So I have some of those old songs, and, and uh, but yes, we we listen. My wife Joanna and I listen to uh, music frequently, and uh, we both love the old big band ballads. Um, are there any other songs from that era that would remind you of your sister or just that time in general? No, not necessarily, because right. that, that was the main song that uh, associated with her. Um, later, as she grew older, she um, liked a n- number of songs, I know, but they were not personal to me. Right. Hmm. Um, you were drafted. To go into the war? Yes. When you were 18? 18. Um, what, what was that like for you? Did you? Was it a time when you knew you were going? Was that a surprise? How did that come about? No, it wasn't a surprise. Um, uh, actually, it turned out that I was lucky. I was in college at the time. and What, to, were, you, what were you studying? I was studying uh, pre-law. Okay. Uh, it turned out that when I came back from the war... I turned uh, all the way around and began to study theater. Uh, I decided that I was going to change the world by being George Bernard Shaw rather than Clarence Darrow. (laughs) And so what was it like going away to war then? Well, uh, there are no good wars. There have never been any good wars. I suppose in history there was... There have been necessary wars, and I felt World War II was a necessary war to prevent the kind of thing that happens when you uh, have a tyrant as a leader in a country, and there are no checks and balances on the tyrant, and they get to do whatever they want, and that's what Hitler Hitler did. And he was destroying the world. Look, he, he destroyed 11 million people, 6 million Jews, 5 million non Jews. 
through deliberate, systematic murder. And nobody was stopping him. So I felt it wasn't necessary war, and I was happy, uh, almost eager. I guess I was eager to get into the service. I've read that you studied specialized radio training. Yes. Uh, actually, what, that, what does that mean? What, what, well, was, what, 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 what it was means your, what is was that role? I, my first trip to Florida uh, was in February 1944 when I came down to Camp Landing uh, northern Florida, near Jacksonville, for basic training. And uh, I apparently had some adaptation to sounds because they gave us tests and they said, okay, you will be studying code, Morse, co Morse code at the okay. time. Okay, yeah, yeah. And radio and the very use of the various radios. So I did that, uh, and then I reached uh, – a very high number in terms of taking code. You took it by hand. Then. Right. And they said, okay, we're sending you to advanced radio school at Fort Benning in Georgia. And I was there in advanced radio school. Instead of being overseas where I would have been in an outfit that landed on D-Day. Hmm. So I missed D-Day. And uh, – Actually, at that time, in, in our barracks, we knew D-Day happened. And, of course, all of us young kids, 18, 19, 20, oh, gee, too bad. We, we missed D-Day. Gosh, we really, you know. But, of course, we were all saying to ourselves, boy, are we lucky. Huh. Did, the, uh, did the initial reports reflect what we now know occurred on D-Day? Did you have the? Did you have a sense of the, the magnitude of the loss and this and the what just what went down? Well, no, because we were so busy there that we just heard the news reports. Right. We didn't know any more than anybody else, and probably less because um, we didn't have newspapers easily available on the base. Right. So it's mostly radio reports. Yeah. And back then, you know, it would take a long time, or relatively speaking, it would take a long time for news to travel compared to now where one well, thing yes, can go around the world in five seconds. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I read in digging up in information on you was that um, when you first joined the military, I think when you went to Camp Blanding, is that what you – Yes. Mm -hmm. You guys were singing a song called Mersey Dotes. Oh, that's an interesting one. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Uh, I, I have. I don't it know you how to, you found that. I have it. If you want to listen to it. Oh, well, no. I'll tell you how that happened. Uh, when when I finished at camp at uh, Fort Benning, and we were sent overseas. Uh, actually, we got there in time for the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, joined the Second Infantry Division, but we landed in England, and uh, and we went to Southampton. We were to take boats across to France because the war was still going on. And when we landed in Southampton, um, actually we landed up way up in Scotland, but we could train down to Southampton, and we walked through the streets as an army unit. And there was a new song that we had heard in the States. And so we walked through the streets, I think, confusing a lot of the people who were there, English people, by singing, Mercy don't know, he don't a little lamb, he divey, kids'll eat ivy, wouldn't you? And now you're playing it. Mercy don't know, he don't a little lamb, he divey, a kid'll eat ivy, too, wouldn't you? 
If the words sound queer and funny to your ear, a little bit jumbled and jivey, sing Mare's Eat-O. When was the last time you heard that? A little comical. They don't play that anymore either. Uh, does that take you back, though? Oh, yes, of course. Isn't that wild how that happens with music? Yes, and music does that. Uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare said, if music be the food of love, play on. But music is the food of life. And that's what you're doing with this program. You're taking music and you're relating it to people's wonderful experiences and I'm sure sometimes very sad experiences. That's indeed. We've definitely, we now have uh, tissues in the studio for a reason because ah. sometimes it, 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 it brings people there. Um, um, so in the military, you started a newspaper. No, uh, I did. You tried to start a newspaper. No, no, I, I, <laughs> no that's another long story. No, um, um, I was in the infantry. Uh, and I was wounded, and when I got to the hospital, they said, um, uh, you're not fit for combat duty anymore. And I, the war was not quite over, but I did miss, miss the uh, push, last push to the Rhine River and, and, uh, and toward the east. And I was assigned to a, uh, actually to the Army Air Corps at the time. And so they sent me to Louberger Airfield in France. That was before the, the new airfield was built, and that was the main airfield. And we uh, had our, our uh, troops there and Air Corps there and waiting to be assigned to an Air Corps unit. And that actually leads to one of the other songs uh, long before... I started a newspaper. My mother was French. Uh, she emigrated from Paris at the end of World War I. And for years growing up, I heard about Paris. Wonderful, beautiful, lovely Paris. And of course, <clears throat> that was reinforced <clears throat> by movies and books. And, and if you went to movies, of course, Paris was always... The, the garden spot of the world. Right. And so I grew up thinking, oh, that most wonderful thing in the world would be to go to Paris. Okay. So now this was April, and actually uh, April 19th, 1945. War was not quite over. And I was at uh, this airfield, and I got a pass to Paris. Two things happened. One, when we went to uh, mess in the morning, we went. Actually, it was a restaurant, unlike the infantry, where you had a sea ration can and dug a hole in the ground to sleep. Uh, I was now in the Air Corps, <laughs> and we had beds and uh, sheets, and actually a restaurant with waiters. <laughs> you know, it was like a, a whole different war. Sure. Uh, but we were sitting there that morning, and um, the waiter came up with a very sad face. Have, have, you, have you listened? What? What? From radio. Roosevelt is dead. Hmm. That was the morning Roosevelt died. And 
we were all young kids still at that time, you know, 18, 19, 20. And so the only president we had ever known in our life was Franklin Roosevelt. So, but that's another story. <laughs> and maybe I'll tell you that sometime if we have another program with you. <laughs> uh, but, um, but anyway, I uh, got my pass to Paris and uh, took the bus and then the metro. And I got off on the Champs-Élysées. You know, everybody's heard of Champs-Élysées. Yeah. Wonderful. So I got off Champs-Élysées, April, and I'm walking along and looking at this wonderful city and the feeling, I'm in, I'm in really in Paris. Oh, my goodness, it's April. I'm really in Paris. And I, right close to me as I was walking by, I hear music. And it's a USO troupe rehearsing. And guess what they were playing? April in Paris. Chestnuts in blossom. April in Paris, the song. Every time I hear that, I get emotional. Hmm. And do you have that? I have it. You ready? I'm ready for April Let's in Paris. Uh, April in Paris, performed by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and his orchestra. Whenever I hear that song, it recalls the wonderful emotion I felt that day. How many years ago? 70-something. Hmm. How much of it was Paris? How much of it was the song? How much of it was just the contrast between Paris and what you'd been going through? Was it all those things? Was it something I've missed? No. Paris in itself was the goal. Right. I had looked forward to it so many years growing up. And uh, it all just came together. Hmm. What was the day like? It was a lovely day that day. It was warm April. Uh, sun was shining, and it was just like Paris should have looked like and should have felt like. Hmm. How long were you there? Just for that day. Just the day? Just the one day. How often have you been back? A uh, number of times. Yeah? And every time I go, it's a whole new wonderful city. Hmm. Um. Did you ever see much of live music? Did you get to see any of these the big bands that you were into, the musicians that you loved? Did you get to see any of those over the years? Uh, well, unfortunately, during the, the 30s, uh, it was very expensive, mm -hmm. like, uh, what, 90 cents to <laughs> go see a uh, big man in person. Now, over the years, I've, I've uh, seen singers and with the bands. One of the stories that I've uncovered from reading up on you has to do with the role that you played at the end of the war with a letter that you wrote. Was that prior to or after this trip to Paris? Oh, that was after. Uh, chronologically, I was signed to the Air Corps and uh, joined what was called the Second Air Disarmament Wing. Uh, that was the organization which disarmed the German Air Force, and uh, looked for all of the German inventions, like the flying wing, and sent them back to Wright Field uh, in order to 
develop them as our weapons. And, of course, we did. Uh, our jet development was largely based on some of the uh, German inventions. They, hmm. they were way ahead of us, I think, at the time. Uh, and when I joined this organization, we ended up at one of the major German uh, airfields. I think it may have been their principal Air Force training base in a place called Kaufbeuren in Bavaria. Uh, and, uh, well, there were a number of us people they didn't know what to do with. We had a very interesting group of people in the 2nd Air Disarmament Wing. One was the basic organization uh, that had been in England during the war, um, working with the 9th Air Force. Uh, another group of people who were put there, didn't know what to do with them, were uh, people who had been in the army jails. These were the, the rebels. Uh, they were wonderful people. Mm. They just revolted against the discipline. You had your own of, little dirty dozen. That's right. Very <laughs> much like that. And then the rest of us, about one-third, uh, were kids like myself uh, who uh, were wounded. They didn't know what to do with us. We, our wounds were enough not to send us back to the front lines, but not bad enough to send us back home. Hmm. So we joined that. And so uh, they wanted to know what I, what I could do. Well, I had to work for a newspaper uh, back home. I was a sports reporter. That was actually my first professional job. <clears throat> and so I said, I'll start a newspaper. And I did. And shortly uh, after that, someone said, you know, uh, good story. Uh, it's a place called St. Atinian. It's a Benedictine monastery where a bunch of Jewish survivors are having a liberation concert. So I went up there and I found that uh, indeed, that was so. 420 people, survivors. And it's a long story, but to make it short, I found that the survivors, Jews and non-Jews, displaced persons, uh, were getting no help from any source. They continued to die. No food, no clothing, no shelter. Uh, they fended for themselves. And uh, so another... G.I., Ed Herman, who died some years ago. In, he uh, retired to Florida and died in the East Coast. Uh, and I did everything we could to try to save the lives of these people at St. Italian. Uh, finally, it ended up where we wrote a long letter uh, to people in the United States saying, um, this continued genocide, and you were to blame. Uh, and so we want you to send food and clothing and medicines. In the meantime, a number of interesting things happened. Uh, one, President Roosevelt, uh, I'm sorry, President Truman by that time, had sent um, the dean of the University of, Pennsylvania, uh, University of Pennsylvania Law School, Earl Harrison, to look into what was happening to the refugees in Europe. Uh, the letter reached President Truman, and he had given it to Earl Harrison. And so one day when we were, uh, Ed and I were in uh, Munich, which was the general headquarters there, uh, the uh, 
we met Earl Harrison, and he said, oh, you're the two youngsters. We were both. Well, uh, I was 19 by then. Uh, Ed was an old man. He was 24. <laughs> uh, and uh, you're the two youngsters wrote this letter. We're going to do something about it. And so I said, oh, Ed, we're going to be court-martialed because this was all illegal. Right. Uh, you should have all through, on our own. You should have gone through proper channels, and you didn't. Well, uh, no, because they wouldn't let us do it. Because a couple of days later, uh, a full colonel came from Paris and said, "I'm here because General Eisenhower wanted me to tell you and Ed Herman that he appreciates what you're doing beyond the call of duty, uh, but you now need to send out no more letters." And we didn't know what was happening. And incidentally, um, the war is over. The war was over in Japan by then. And he said, uh, you know, we need soldiers like you and Ed Herman up in the Aleutian Islands. And he said, I looked at your record. I noticed you had frozen feet in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, you wouldn't like it up there. You'd have to put him in ski boots. Where are the Aleutian Islands? The islands and up in in. Alaska. Okay. Like oh, in the Bering yeah. Sea. If you're up in Alaska, <laughs> the you, know, you know where the Aleutians are, you know how cold it now gets. Now I know. Okay. E even not in the winter. Right, right. Uh, and uh, that night we did send out more letters, but the upshot was that uh, these letters had a great effect. Uh, President Truman, the uh, New York Times headline uh, on September – I think it was September 30th, 1945, read, President orders Eisenhower to end new abuse of Jews, mm. likens our treatment to that of the Nazis. So we, Ed and I, uh, were very pleased with what we were able to do, and uh, we, I think, helped save the lives of thousands of survivors of the concentration camps uh, through that. Uh, there is more to that because over the years, particularly in the last 10 to 20 years, uh, we have met with and had reunions with some of those survivors. And actually last June, I went back to a conference at this monastery in St. Attilian in Bavaria um, where we met with a bunch of number of people now in their 70s who were babies hmm. born at St. Attilian of the people, the mothers and fathers, who we met there and helped save. That must have been pretty powerful. It still is. Hmm. It still is. But the, the point of that is we were two privates. Yeah. Uh, no power, no connections. Uh, but we stuck our necks out. And what I tell people, I've been making speeches about this all over the country and actually other foreign countries. And I say, look, if you see something in your town, on your playground, there are bullies, there are politicians you don't like in your, in your country, things happening that you see that you think are wrong, try to change it. You may not succeed, but you may succeed, and if you succeed, you will have achieved in doing something very important for humanity. 
you've and the and the, the people who respond most, frankly, are children in elementary schools. I believe it. You've done a lot of things since then. Did accomplishing that at that young age give you a sense of I can do things. I can make differences in the world with my actions and my decisions. It goes beyond that. It is to look at what is happening in your world, whether it's your block or your country or larger. And if there's something you see is wrong, is hurting people, uh, do what you can to stop it. Again, maybe it won't work. But maybe it will. Hmm. Um, how many books have you written? I found uh, about about forty. About forty. <laughs> um, were you an I mean, were, were you an author? Were you were you something else? A guy who wrote books? I couldn't no, quite no, get to I, the base to the base of it. No, I had I had three careers. Uh, my first career was in the media in New York, um, working in the theater, working in television and radio. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, actually, uh, for a while, for several years, I was a drama critic for the uh, Brooklyn Daily newspaper. That was very exciting. Um, then my second career was uh, with the Federal Communications Commission in, and with the federal government in Washington. I was uh, chief of public broadcasting at the FCC and um, – some years chaired the Federal Interagency Media Committee uh, for the White House. Um, and that was also exciting. And then when I retired from the government, uh, I went into academia. I was a college dean and then later professor. And now uh, I find I don't have enough time. I'm... <laughs> I'm uh, Working right now on a, a nonfiction book and two novels, and I continue to write plays. And people say, uh, you know, well, what do you do? I mean, you're, you're 94, uh, you sit around on your rocking chair on the porch. That's not what life's about. There are always things to do. I was lucky, uh, whatever the skills I have for writing. So I, I'm up in the middle of the night writing. Huh. Because particularly when you reach a certain age, you know that not that many years left. You've got to get these done. You've got to make your points. Uh, more important to me here in uh, this area of Florida uh, was being able to have the special pleasure and privilege of being on the advisory board here at WGCU for some years. And also, at this present time, I'm continuing to work on plays. I've had a number of plays uh, presented, usually um, stage readings at Theater Conspiracy and mm -hmm. the uh, Laboratory Theater of Florida, and uh, have a number of plays that I hope will be done. Uh, and I, say, I guess I'm saying all this to those people who are retired and saying, what do I do with myself? I don't want to sit around and, and play mahjong or, or uh, solitaire all day long. Everybody has an interest. Everybody can do something. But you just got to do it, and it doesn't matter 
whether you do it well or badly, but you could do it. It doesn't matter if you succeed. It's doing, it's letting yourself out. It's presenting to the world whatever you have within you that you can give the world. Um, and it may be writing, it may be drawing, it may be painting, it may be getting on a picket line or participating in a, in a political campaign. But they can do it, and it keeps you alive. Hmm. Um, what kind of doctor are you? PhD. In what? Uh, basically, media education. Okay. I saw, I saw a doctor on your name somewhere, yeah. and I couldn't track down the source of it. Yeah. Columbia um, University. Columbia University. Um, you uh, were there when the Public Broadcasting Act was signed. I was – yes. Uh, actually, I was uh, at Lyndon Johnson's signing – uh, and uh, I won the pens that he signed it with. Wow. How many presidents have you met? How many presidents have I met? Uh, I think only Lyndon only Johnson. Only Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> well, that's surprising to me. I've Bob seen a like... presidents. But, uh... um, how does it feel for you to watch PBS today and listen to NPR today knowing the history of it so intimately? That's a double-edged question. Uh, one sense, it has grown so tremendously and uh, it's been so creative in so many ways. And yet sometimes when I listen to some programs, I say to myself, this could be better. Hmm. But of course, if you're in this field, you do the same thing. When you're listening to it, when you're not working and presenting the material, you're listening to it or watching it, I'm sure those of you, because you're in the field, you're an expert, you're professional, you're more critical than you would be. When you're in this field, you do it to your own shows. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember Neil Conan, Talk of the Nation host on, N on NPR? I don't know him, no. But do you remember who, who he was? He was oh, on until a few years ago. Oh, yes. He yes. did a station visit once, and he said, I said, do you ever listen to Talk of the Nation when you're not hosting it? And he said, no. Either it's worse than me and it makes me mad, uh -huh. or it's better than me and it makes me mad. Right, right. <laughs> um, let's move on to your third song. Now, we've had to change this at the end. Uh, what was the song that we were trying to get that we couldn't find? In uh, the musical play written by Mark Blitzstein, which deals with union and deals with uh, management. Mr. Mister, who controls the town, sings a song uh, saying, one step forward and two steps back. And that deals with the way he treats people and progress. And of course, Ms. Mark Blitzstein was, it was a political play. It was very pro-union. Uh, and uh, I remember seeing that, and I, uh, because um, growing up during a period of the 30s, I saw uh, what unions did. You know, unions gave people a 40-hour week, gave people a safe place to work, gave people pensions, gave them vacations. I mean, all the things that, that everybody has now who are working, whether a union or not, but unions gave it to them. And so I was very much impressed by that particular play. 
uh, and that song. I can't find it, and you couldn't find no, it. No, we couldn't find and, it and anywhere. I, so um, I suggest an, an alternative, and um, this relates to a person who I knew, who I considered probably the greatest human being I've ever met hmm. outside of parents, relatives, friends. He was uh, an All-American football player. He got a law degree from Columbia University. He was an award-winning Broadway actor. He was a worldwide known, very famous baritone. And he was a great civil rights leader setting the stage for people like Martin Luther King Jr. Hmm. His name was Paul Robeson. And Paul Robeson, an African-American, had probably the best baritone voice that anyone's ever heard. Uh, he was very active politically. Uh, one of the outstanding experiences of my life, and any people out there who know the history of civil rights will know what I mean when I say I was at Peekskill with Paul Robeson. If you don't know what that means, all I can tell you is that was a civil rights rally for civil rights, not only for blacks, but for everybody and for civil liberties. And we were attacked and beaten up uh, by uh, far right-wing groups, uh, the kind of groups that we see today espousing hatred and bigotry and racism. Uh, but that was one of the beginnings of civil rights movements hmm. in this country. Uh, Paul Robeson was vilified. Uh, he couldn't work in this country because he refused to be in demeaning roles. He went to England and he made movies there. Uh, during the Cold War, his passport was taken away. He couldn't work here. Hmm. Uh, Paul Robeson, uh, at one point early on, went to Soviet Union. And uh, there he said he was treated like a human being and not as a second-class citizen. So he was labeled a communist. Uh, he was far from anything but a very patriotic American. And uh, I knew Paul and loved him. And in fact, one of the great, other great moments of my life was when he gave a concert in Cleveland. He invited me to sit on the stage with him. Hmm. And I was sitting 10 feet away from where he sang. Uh, one of his great songs, attesting to his love of America, was The House I Live In, and you have it to play. Let's listen to it. Uh, the House I Live In uh, by Paul Robeson. 
That song put up against the story you just told about how he was treated is really yes. something. How'd you guys meet? Uh, I was uh, in graduate school in Cleveland. And uh, that was the time for the Cold War was really heating up. And uh, I was very active in terms of um, always up in civil rights, civil liberties. And he came to Cleveland, and that's where I met him the first time. What are your thoughts on the world today and the, the ways that we've seemingly gone off the rails, if I can be so bold? And I'll try to be as um, diplomatic as I can. But uh, one of the things I saw in World War II was how a nation can be led by a dictatorial leader. Early on, the people in Germany were not all Nazis, but they wanted change. And the change that they took uh, was to elect as chancellor of Germany a, a uh, bigot, a racist, anti-Semite, who had a small group, not very large group, of people, but very faithful people with him. And rather than continue as uh, chancellor, and he was elected president after that, uh, in the role of a democratic person, he took upon himself the idea that he was above the law, that uh, he could do anything he wanted. He appointed as to the top posts the people who supported him, who weren't necessarily qualified for those roles. Uh, he, when the legislature itself wanted to do something, he simply uh, ignored the legislature. That's how dictators have developed in various countries throughout the world. And I am very concerned that in any country, uh, when the population sits back and lets someone flout the law, act as if they are a dictator, paying no attention to the democratic rules and processes of their country, we allow ourselves eventually to be led down the kind of road that uh, the people in Italy under Mussolini and the people in Germany under Hitler and uh, people in various other countries throughout the world have let themselves be taken. You've lived a long time. You've watched a lot of the world happen. Could you have imagined you'd be at a place now at your age making that statement or reflection? I did not think it would happen in my country. One of the questions that we ask uh, is what would your middle school self think of who you are today, which would be your 13, 14-year-old self? 
I'm going to rephrase it. Be very surprised. Okay. Well, I won't rephrase it then. Go go on with it. Yeah. What would your younger self think if he looked at you right now here in this place in the world? You know, uh, very strange. When I entered college, I, I um, graduated from high school on my 16th birthday. So I started college a few months later. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought uh, probably because my parents were interested in that, I would be pre-med. Uh, and I remember not being very sure about it. And I took a course in physics, and I hated it. So I thought something is not quite right. I really should not go into the sciences. I took a – that time they had – may still have something called cruder cooter preference test. And the test tests various types of things that you're interested in, who you want to associate with. And uh, I took that and they said, uh, what you really ought to be is an author journalist. And I said, nonsense. Hmm. I'm not a writer. That's what I became. It knew. Somehow. <laughs> Huh. Um, so your 13-year-old self would look at all your accomplishments probably with a lot of pride. Well, I'm not so sure because I've not won a Pulitzer Prize. Oh. It's not too late. I've not had a plate on Broadway. So uh, I'd be very happy to submit any of my 20 plays to uh, any producer who wants to read them. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what are you working on now? You said you've, you're working on a play and a couple books. Is, is that what you said? Uh, I'm uh, actually uh, in 1997. I published uh, my memoir of what we were talking about earlier uh, in Germany, post-war Germany, and the plight of the displaced persons, called "Surviving the Americans: uh, The Continuing Struggle of the Jews After Liberation." And uh, it's been out of print for some years oh. now. So I'm now working on an updated edition. I've learned a lot more about what happened back then. It doesn't deal only with uh, the St. Ottilian Hospital and Monastery, um, but with um, information about what happened right after the war for several months to um, – all the displaced persons. And I have originally had and still have all the documentation. Uh, in fact, it was on the part of our American occupation forces genocide by neglect. Hmm. Do you sing? You sung a couple times here in the studio. Are you a singer? Well, let's see. Do you have a shower stall here? And I'll show you. you we can close our eyes and pretend. <laughs> well, you sang both the first, those first two songs without any, um, you know, embarrassment. It seemed. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think my voice at this point is strong enough to do that. Oh, I love to sing. You know, we all do in the shower, or, and. Um, my wife puts up with my singing. Actually, she says I'm pretty good, but uh, I think she's just being nice. <laughs> um, did you ever get up on stage? You said you'd studied theater. I mean, you've written plays. Did you oh, ever yes. do any acting? Uh, yeah, I was a member. I did professional acting one time way back. I was a member of Actors' Equity Association. and Actually, my first union 
was AFRA, American Federation of Radio Artists. Hmm. Um, that was before it became AFTRA, American Federation of Radio and Television Artists, before television. That was 1949, hmm. I believe. And I joined AFRA at the time because um, in Cleveland there was a very good show, a uh, radio show, called The Cleveland Story. And I can't remember, it was 15 minutes, I think it was a half an hour. Dramas about events in the history of Ohio, of Ohio story, it was called. Uh, and so I acted on that show for a while. It was, and um, at that time, uh, I was in graduate school and living on a GI Bill. And I'm trying to remember what we got for each show, something like $15, hmm. uh, which was a lot of money back then. Um, okay. No, normally, the last question we ask is, are there any songs that you'll avoid listening to for whatever reason? But I'm going to go ahead and say Hamilton for you. <laughs> you <know>. Well, <laughs> no. I, no, I, I really – I was being a little facetious about that. Okay. No. Uh, uh, I'm not into uh, rock or, or rap, but I listen to it because I find it interesting and sometimes entertaining. Part of the problem is I don't understand the lyrics. Right. Maybe read them, read along. Yes, that would help. <laughs> okay. Uh, my real last question is: Is okay? You've done so many things, Bob Hilliard. What's one thing that we don't know about you? Give us a little gem. Hmm, that's a very interesting question. I never thought about that. Uh, I don't know. I haven't been shy. I've told you everything I've been doing. <laughs> okay. Well, then, any final thoughts? My final thought is that uh, I think what you're doing in getting people to relive moments in their lives through music is very important. And even though sometimes it's painful, it's one way of finding your past and perhaps understanding your past and yourself better than you might otherwise. Mm. Well, thank you so much for doing it. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It, it's been a joy being with you. We make this show in the studios of WGCU Public Radio at Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and sometimes host. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Quick reminder to please help spread the love by finding us and liking us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram and by rating us on iTunes. For this week's parting tune, I'm going back to two nights ago as I pre-listened to Bob's episode. When it ended, my media player moved on to the first track of the album I'd most recently listened to, and it just landed just right. The tone, the message, the everything. So I reached out to the artist, Toronto-based folk singer John Brooks, who we learned about from episode 57 guest Shauna Caspi, also a folk singer in Toronto, to see if we could play it in its entirety. He replied, quote, I'd be honored and most flattered if you used When We Go as a parting song. From my end, it'd be absurd to be other than extremely grateful. So here's When We Go from the new album Moth Nor Rust 2 by future Three Song Stories guest John Brooks. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. We had to help, and of whom the Tata's. Sin.
it's not love We can't take it when we go We can't take it when we go When we go, wherever we go If it's not love, we can't take it when we go To that place where my heart no rust Cannot touch us past this dust If it's not love, we can't take it when we go And all our prizes and impulse buzz Thee will be faster praised And into one bargain bin They'll be casually thrown Until what's favored and are forgotten Will delicately be told If you're not love, kid, we can't take you we go We can't take it when we go when we go wherever we go If it's not love we can't take it when we go To that place when my heart no rust cannot touch us past this dust if it's not love, we can't take it when we go. Na 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 La na 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 La da 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 La da 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 La na 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 Next time on Three Song Stories. He made a pass over us just to make sure that this was the right spot. We're waving, and here's these two clowns hanging out of the cargo <laughs> door with suicide straps around their hands, and they've got the leather helmets on with the goggles on, mm-hmm. screaming. Aah! And they went and made a pass by us, and the only thing that left behind at that pass was the badass chill down my back and the smell of sped aviation fuel. <laughs>